The sun rises over the San Joaquin Valley, California. Today is August 7, 2020. Have you heard any news about COVID-19? Yes, you surely have. Who hasn't? But above all the negativity surrounding this disease, including political issues that we won't talk about today, there is hope for the future. Have you heard of, for example, mRNA-1273? Could this be the next vaccine that we have been waiting for? We don't know yet, but there are more than 21 vaccines being tested right now around the world. If an effective vaccine is found, you'll certainly hear about it on this podcast. Welcome to Rio Bravo QE, the podcast of the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program, recorded weekly from Bakersfield, California, the land where growing is happening everywhere. The Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program trains residents and students to prevent illnesses and bring health and hope to our community. Our mission is to seek, teach, and serve. Sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista, we are providing compassionate and affordable care to patients throughout Kern and Fresno counties since 1971. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Victor E. Frankel Hello, residents. Um, This is a very good quote, and I'm reminded that we can choose how to react to our circumstances, but sometimes we don't have any control over the circumstances that we are experiencing. So during your residency, make sure that you have the right attitude. Choose to be positive, choose to be happy, and choose to to make the best out of it. And you'll have a very positive result. So today we have a special resident Dr. Rava, that's his artistic name, and he's here with us, and uh, I'm very happy that he accepted to stay a little longer today in the clinic. Today is Friday afternoon or evening, and he decided to stay. We have had a long day, but he decided to stay. Thank you, Dr. Rava, for being here. So introduce yourself, please. Um, um, You're welcome. My pleasure to be here. (laughs) Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So I'm Dr. Rava, as, you know, I'm known as Dr. Rava. Rava stands for my initials. My name is Roberto Alejandro Velasquez Amador. So, you know, Dr. Rava sounds like easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also known as is Dr. Velasquez Amador and also Dr. Amador by itself. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm originally from Mexico. I was born and raised in Mexico. I went to medical school in Mexico. I finished my, you know, medical studies over there and then at some point I decided to move to the United States. What um, university did you go to? I went to the University of Guadalajara in Jalisco. Okay. Yes, very proudly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, currently I'm a third year resident of family medicine here at Rio Bravo. And you went to UCLA IMG program, which is also a program that I went to and we're very proud to be part of that program yes i also you know very very um grateful <laughs> yeah it was a very good program because they train you to to start your residency especially when you graduated in another country they help you with the rotations and 
etc. It's a good preparation. Yeah, and it it, it exposes you to the, uh, the United States medical system, the hospital system. It allows you to rotate and see patients and, you know, work with other residents. I mean, in the meantime, that you're a medical student, but student, but you're not a medical student, right? You're yeah. a graduate. That's so great. That was a, you know, a great door and opportunity for me. So what do you learn this week, Dr. Amador? Oh, talking about what I learned this week, I think I learned about something about secondary hypertension. We had this patient at the hospital that was taking um, hydrocortisone. Oh. And, you know, he was prescribed hydrocortisone because for for a suspected adrenal insufficiency. Mm-hmm. The patient ended up became hypertensive and had other electrolyte arrangements. So this patient has you know, presented as a secondary hypertension, secondary to the external, you know, glucocorticoid use. And okay. I thought that was, you know, that was uh, that was an interesting topic topic to talk about today. Not not because of the cushion syndrome, but uh, but because of the secondary hypertension. The topic is very interesting. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, hypertension is something we see in clinic every single day. I don't think you see. You don't you don't pass one day in clinic when you don't see a patient with hypertension, right? Right, or mostly like 80% of your patients have hypertension. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a good topic to discuss um, because sometimes we we um, skip the workup because we assume that all of them, they have primary hypertension. But we're going to talk about secondary hypertension today. Right. Um, so what are some, some of the features that you think are suggestive or are at risk for having secondary hypertension? Well, um, there is red flags or keys, you know, you know, situations that where, where we can start suspecting about um, that a patient has another an underlying cause of hypertension, and this is you know, patient with resistant hypertension, meaning that they are on more than three or on three uh, hypertensive medications, and you know, he just the patient is just not controlled. In general, in general, um, in acute blood pressure. You know, let's say that your patient has been treated for hypertension, it was controlled, and then you have an increased rise um, in the value of the, you know, of his blood pressures. You know, we may start considering considering that he has an underlying situation, a patient that has hypertension um, before puberty, or is less than, you know, he's younger than 30 years, and he has no family history of no obesity, and the patient is hypertensive. So we always hear about this renovascular uh, hypertension. When do you suspect that one? A renovascular disease, um, you would suspect that when you know your patient has an unexplained creatinine elevation, or um, after you start using a, an ACE inhibitor or an ARP, and in, in usually if it's an increase of fifty percent of, of the, on the creatinine value or level. You, may, you can suspect of renovascular disease and go ahead and do the workup. So it should be a good practice then to be a, to do a BMP in a patient after starting ACE inhibitor. You may have a baseline and then a follow-up uh-huh. a few weeks later, three months later. Okay. And, you know. mm-hmm. um, also, patients with, with diffuse or history of diffuse atherosclerosis or they have a small kidney, you know, unilateral small kidney, a symmetry of the kidney size for, of more than 1.5 centimeters, can be another um, clue to suspect a renovascular disease. Okay. Um, also, uh, in, on, on your exam, if the patient has a systolic or diastolic abdominal bruit, you can you you know you may start suspecting of uh, and obviously a patient with hypertension, right? Okay. Okay. 
So uh, other causes are pheochromocytoma. So tell me a little bit about that one. Well, pheochromocytoma is also a, a hormonal derangement of you know of increased um, metanephrines in the system and in, in, in the yeah in the in the body. These may lead to paroxysmal elevations of the blood pressure and usually presents as a triad of headache, palpitations, and sweating. Although, you know, this is just a constellation of symptoms. Some, sometimes people may not be hypertensive or may not have, you know, palpitations or headache. But if you have this patient with these paroxysmal episodes of these symptoms, you may start considering to rule out a pheochromocytoma. Also, what we're talking about today is primary aldosteronism, which is a, a, another hormonal disorder of, of excess of mineral corticoids that may lead a patient to be hypertensive with low potassium. That's the key point of this topic. Okay. So patients with sleep apnea, uh, they usually have uh, hypertension too and um, coartation of the aorta. You know, you can see that one mostly in kids. You know, with uh, you mentioned the blood pressure in both hands, in both arms, mm -hmm. and there is a, a difference, a significant difference between the two blood pressures. Right. And yeah. also you feel that the femoral artery is not as strong. So that's that's why it's important when you have hypertension in kids to check the femoral pulses right. to make sure that they are comparable. And the blood pressure on, on four extremities because there's a discrepancy on the, you know, upper extremities, they're hypertensive and they're hypotensive or, you know, they're not hypertensive on the lower extremities. Oh, ex exactly. Blood pressure. Exactly. Yeah. Hypothyroidism, yeah. you know, patients with hypothyroidism may be hypertensive so and it's easy to treat. We just... Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And hyperparathyroidism. So there's a big, you know, whole constellation of causes that may be, you know, producing hypertension without it being essential, right? Okay. So let's jump to primary aldosteronism. That's the, the main topic you want to talk about today. Well, primary aldosteronism is a hormonal disorder that leads to high blood pressure, okay? Uh, it occurs when your adrenal glands produce too much of aldosterone, a mineral corticoid. Okay, so this produces a volume expansion, hypertension, and uh, patients with hyper, you know, the key point or one of the findings that, that is common in hyperaldosteronism is that patients tend to have a low, you know, they may be hypokalemic or they may be prone to hypokalemia with the use of diuretics. Okay. Um, although, you know, patients with hyper, you know, with primary aldosteronism, they may be, they are hypertensive, but they may be, you know, their, their potassium levels may be normal. Okay. Or you may see patients also that have a low potassium and they're normal tensive. Mm, okay, that you can see several combinations then. Right. So it's, okay. you're suspicious also, you know, you have, your radar has to always be on and, you know, when you have your patients with hypertension. Okay. For, you know, this small... Um, so are, are there more than one type of primary aldosteronism? There is, you know, there... The most um, common subtypes of primary primary aldosteronism is aldosterone-producing adenomas. It's an adenoma and uh, bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. So, oh, okay. So it's either you have a little tumor or you have a hyperplasia of the whole gland. Basically. Yeah, well, bilaterally. Bilateral. And they're producing okay. excess of hormones and um, an array of symptoms that would include, you know, primary aldosteronism. Okay. And the treatment, you know, you have to treat the mineral, mineral corticoid excess, and that would, you know, improve the hypertension and also the resolution of the increased cardiovascular risk. 
Who should you test for a primary al hyperaldosteronism? Mm, primary, you know, it'll be case by case, but you know, we have some some tips or who to who, do, who, do who test. should be tested. Yeah. Yes, who should be tested? For, for, you know, patients with hypertension and with an with an spontaneous or low dose diuretic induced hypokalemia. Okay. Let's say we start the patient on hydrochlorothiazide and then the potassium dropped. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a sign that we may okay. be suspecting. Okay, it can drop, but it is drops like with a low dose, and drops uh, like a lot. Right. Okay. Yeah. Severe hypertension on a, or drug resistant hypertension, drug resistant, uh, you know, drug resistant hypertension will be defined as you're using more than three drugs, uh, including a, a adrenergic inhibitor, a vasodilator, and a diuretic. Uh, and you're still not able to control the patient's blood pressure, you can go ahead and start testing. Hypertension, and you also know that the patient has an uh, um, adrenal incentabiloma, you already know that the patient has a tumor. So on, on what's the, an the incidentaloma? Incidentaloma it would be uh, finding on a CT scan or an MRI or imaging of, of a mass mm -hmm. that is close to the adrenal, you know, mm -hmm. in this case, adrenals, but also can be, you know, so you know part of variable, you know, if you're looking for a few chromocytoma. Okay. It's incidental, a mass that may be producing mineral corticoids. It's an incidental finding of a, a mass in the um, adrenal gland. Okay. Right. So Hypertension with sleep apnea. Let's say the patient has sleep apnea and he's also hypertensive, mm. right? Okay. So it's one of the symptoms. When you're describing that, I feel like you're describing one of my patients. I don't think she's listening to this podcast, but she knows who she is. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And also, you know, hypertension, a family history of early onset of hypertension or CVA before the age of 40. Okay. So the patient hypertensive and also has family history of hypertension or, or a CVA below the age of 40. That is also suspicion. You know, it, that may raise your suspicion. So pressure. family history is very important in... In this case, right. so when you have a family family member, the first degree relatives, they should be tested. Then also, if you're, you know, a daughter or or a sibling or parent has uh, primary aldosteronism, all the first degree relatives should be tested. Okay, sounds good. So how do you test it? Well, the initial initial testing will be with a you know it's PAC, uh, PRC, or PRA that stand for PAC for plasma aldosterone, aldosterone concentration, plasma renin activity, PRA, and plasma renin concentration, PRC. So how can we remember that? PAC, PRA, and PRC. Right. Okay. So for sure, plasma aldosterone concentration, then you can do the renin, the plasma renin activity or the plasma renin concentration. Okay. Either or. Okay. Yeah. So it is usually uh, is uh, this test is performed in the morning at early 8 a.m. or it can either be ambulatory, paired, random PAC in a PRC or a P or a PRA. So okay. it can also be random, but at the same time, they have to be taken at the same time. Okay. What you're doing, your patients are going to be on, on hypertensive medication, so it's important to know that they need they can continue the their hypertensive medication. Don't, so they don't can th take it. Yeah, they can okay. take it. Don't take them off. And they can still, you know, take the test. Okay. Right. And what to expect, right? What are you gonna? What are you gonna? How are you gonna interpret um, these results? Uh, well, in, in primary aldosteronism, the 
the um, PRC, this plasma membrane concentration and plasma membrane activity are typically very low. Okay. Right? And um, so that's what you're going to expect. And that's going to like raise your concerns also, right? Mm-hmm. And the plasma, um, the plasma aldosterone concentration is mm-hmm. going to be usually more than 50 nanograms per deci- deciliter. So it's going to be high. And it's going to be high, yeah. Okay. But it can be it can be as low as 10, but you know, there there's cutoffs for this. So it's usually 15 is more than 15 and then um, you're going to start um, that will make your diagnosis or help you with your diagnosis. Um, <clears throat> up to date recommends that, you know, the says that some clinicians calculate the the plasma aldosterone concentration and the PRA, which is the plasma renin activity ratio as part of the case detection strategy. And it's also preferred to use the pair random PAC and PRA. The mean value of this ratio is norm- in normal subjects and patients with primary de- aldo- uh, hypertension would be um, from 4 to 10. So you, you know, you're going to make this division and you're going to get a rate ratio in patients, normal patients with no hypertension or patients with uh, essential hypertension will have a ratio of 4 to 10. And patients with primary aldosteronism will have an increased ratio that is 30 to 50 uh, in most patients with primary hyperaldosteronism. In general, this ratio greater than 20 is considered suspicious. And in uh, some other, you know, the, you know, some other books, uh, they have a cutoff of 20. Okay. Okay. It was a little complicated, to be honest to you. Okay. So you have your patient mm-hmm. <laughs> that you're suspicious of. Mm-hmm. And you ask, you know, we're going to test plasma aldosterone concentration, mm-hmm. your plasma renin activity or plasma renin concentration. Okay. Three. And you come up with that ratio. And you come up with a ratio. The ratio is um, a PAC-PRA, plasma aldosterone concentration over plasma renin activity. Okay. So if you're a normal patient, you're going to have a ratio of, of 4 to 10. Okay. So meaning that your plasma aldosterone concentration is... Four to ten times higher than the plasma renin activity. Okay. If it's higher than that, then that's hyper. I mean, it's aldosteronism. Right. Why? Because you have uh, your plasma aldosterone concentration is higher uh, in proportion to the renin activity or the renin concentration. Okay. So if it's four to ten, you're normal, and if your patient is hypertensive, then that means that you have a patient with essential hypertension or the at least it's not primary aldosteronism. Okay. And then, but you, if it's above 20, then you, you know, they may, they may raise your suspicions for it. Or, and if it's 30 to 50, you know, the, you're most likely to have the diagnosis of primary um, aldosteronism. Okay. Okay. All right. So is there anything else that you want to talk about with primary aldosteronism? Yeah. Um, so yes, if you have, a, let's say that you're on this, you can give us you know, a summary, so you can. Gray, you know, if you're in this gray, gray area, uh, um, in, in regards of the, of the cutoff, right? So let's say that you you have your patient that has all these symptoms that you suspect that your patient has primary hyperaldosteronism, um, and then you do the ratio, and the ratio is above 20. Plus, your patient has a spontaneous hypokalemia, right? Then you have your diagnosis. Okay. Ratio above 20 and your spontaneous hypokalemia. Okay. Right? But if it doesn't, but it's still the ratio is elevated and the patient doesn't have hypokalemia because we, we're talking that some patients 
maybe hypertensive, but the, the potassium is always normal. Okay. And they still have, you know, uh, hyperaldosteronism. So you have confirmato- uh, confirmation test, and that is a 24-hour urine aldosterone, sodium, and creatinine on a high sodium diet. So you give high sodium, there is a way to do it, and then you measure this. Uh, okay, this so that's to confirm that there is uh, primary aldosteronism, right. okay. Or, or a fluidocortisone suppression test can also you know, confirm your diagnosis, or a saline suppression testing. So that's all the three confirmatory test, uh, tests that you're gonna have to do in this patient. Okay. Right. Well, that's, and we'll talk about those tests the next time. Okay. <laughs> I invite you. Okay. okay. But I think at least we get the idea that patients with resistant hypertension or patients with hypertension at a very young age, we should be ruling out a secondary cause. So don't forget primary aldosteronism and do the, the PAC, the PRC, or the PRA. Is that what it is? PRA, PRC, yeah. So you can do those tests to rule out primary aldosteronism. And you'll be surprised. You'll, you'll diagnose some of them. Right. And, uh, and you're going to be able to treat these patients in a, you know, a better way. Correct. Yeah. yeah okay. Hopefully. That's, that's the purpose of residency. Like yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Velasquez, Amador, thank you for being here with us. And I hope you guys understood all that information that he gave you. He's a very smart guy, and um, yeah. Any final <laughs> words that you want to no, say? Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you for inviting me. Okay. Um, we had a little fight, but at the end, now we're friends again. S- sort of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Celia Cruz died. And he was uh -huh. like, who is this Celia Cruz that everybody's talking about? And I was like, hey, she was a Cuban lady. Oh, but they, yeah. didn't, they didn't know about her at all. She's huge, too. <laughs> yeah. She's... All over, like, South America, <laughs> Central America. We know her. Yeah. Well, wow. Azúcar. Let's remember Celia Cruz today. And uh, thank you, Claudia, for recording this uh, Spanish word of the week. Spanish, por favor. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a nice weekend. Hello, everybody. Uh, today we have a special guest. He's uh, actually our first medical student to be interviewed. So I'm very happy that Denise, she volunteered to talk about continuous glucose monitoring today. And uh, so let's start by asking her, like, can you introduce yourself, Denise? Sure. Thank you, Dr. Ariaza, for having me on today. Um, I'm a medical student, I'm a third year, and I'm also from California, and I have a master's in public health, so I'm really excited to talk about continuous glucose monitoring. Yeah, this is a, a topic that I, all, I wanted to talk about because CGM is becoming, you know, the standard of care for diabetes care, and uh, I'm glad that you are going to talk about that today. So last week we had a patient, Yes. and the patient was a type 1 diabetic, type 1, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he had one of those in his arms. Actually, he, he was asking for a refill. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we decided just to investigate a little bit about CGM because we are not using them right now in the clinic, but I'm hopeful that we can start using them in the clinic. And Denise is, uh, has been doing some research, and, and she's going to talk about it today. So, Denise, what's a CGM? So a CGM is a continuous glucose monitor. It's a special type of device that allows for continuous measurement of glucose levels from the interstitial fluid rather than the blood. And depending on the device, glucose levels are measured every five to 15 minutes. And it allows for a measurement of a trend in a patient's glucose levels as opposed to a single uh, measurement of a glucose level at a single point in time. Um, and this was commonly used as the traditional fingerprint testing. So it, it allows for a better option for our type 1 diabetics by having a continuous trending number instead of um, having them uh, prick their fingers, you know, 10 times a day. Yeah, so instead of like having a sample like four times a day or sometimes, you know, even less than that, so you are continuously checking the glucose. So, and it's good that you mentioned that it's uh, the interstitial glucose, which is not exactly like the, you know, the glucose in serum, but it's very, very close. Mm -hmm. And, um, okay, so how do you use a CGM? So a CGM has a small sensor that you place under the patient's skin, and this can be under the arm or on the abdomen, and the glucose readings are sent to a monitor via a transmitter. And then depending on which brand you use, the monitor may be attached directly to an insulin pump, which can be easily placed in a patient's pocket or purse for convenience. Otherwise, some CGM devices may even send the glucose readings directly to a smartphone or other smart device if the patient has the application. Wow, that's the future of diabetes care. That's it awesome. Really, it really is. It, it engages the patient and then also the physician who can look on uh, the trends as well. Yeah. And why should we prescribe CGM instead of a traditional glucometer? So this helps engage patients and helps them to take active control of their diabetes and they can trend it and they can look at these numbers. Um, it gives them a better idea on how their sugar levels 
fluctuate throughout the day, they can even visually see the hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic level trends. And as such, we've seen a decreased incidence of having hypoglycemic, uh, hypoglycemic emergencies as such. And some devices also come with an alarm that can alert the patient when their glucose levels are too high or too low. And this allows for uh, reduced finger stick pricks overall. Too bad one of my patients didn't have one of these. She's been in the hospital like at least four times for hypoglycemia. Oh, no. And um, so this definitely saves time to the patient and saves resources. Mm -hmm. You know, having a patient out of the hospital is better than having a patient in the hospital. Yep. So what kind of brand names do you find out there? Out there? So the one that we see at Clinica Sierra Vista quite a bit is the Freestyle Libre. Um, we've also seen Dexcom G6, Sensionics Eversense, and Medtronic Guardian 3. A little bit more about the Freestyle Libre is that it is currently approved by Medicare. So it has the lowest cost and widest inaccuracy and low glucose range. Um, the CGM system that automatically measures the blood glucose glucose levels of the person wearing it. And as we had said before, it comes with the sensor and then um, a digital reader above the sensor so that you're able to track the amount of glucose in the patient's system at the moment and stores this data on the digital reader. So this can also be um, stored on a computer and it can be also printed in a PDF and provided to the physician. So the physician can also track uh, the levels that the patient has had at home, at sleep, at rest. Uh, so this allows for um, checking glucose regularly. Additionally, uh, the Freestyle Libre allows for patients to check their glucose in public discreetly, which helps them uh, be more compliant as well. So it's easier to check your blood, I mean your blood glucose when you're in a restaurant, you're in that's nice. Um, something that's interesting about these uh, CGMs also that now during the pandemic, you know, uh, Medicare is covering them for type 2 diabetics who are in the hospital. We are not using them right now in our hospital and care medical, but, you know, for those listeners out there, uh, be aware that it's covered by Medicare on your patients with COVID-19 who are in the hospital because it reduces exposure of the nurses and all the personnel in the in the hospital to um, you know to check their their sugar and um, so have you found out anything about like medical and medicare coverage medical is the insurance that is used in california uh, that is equivalent of medicaid in other states so do you know anything about the coverage so Medicare does cover therapeutic continuous glucose monitors and related supplies instead of blood sugar monitors for making diabetes treatment decisions like changes in diet and insulin dosage. For these individuals, coverage of diabetes, drugs, and technology dramatically increases their chance of living a life free of complications. Uh, despite this, however, continuous glucose monitors are not covered by Medi-Cal. CGMs are covered under the California Children's Services, a state program for children with certain diseases or health problems. This is limited only to children with multiple comorbidities and children who are disabled. Okay, so medical doesn't cover it yet. Not yet. Okay, hopefully soon, mm -hmm. because I think this will make a big difference in the diabetes care for our patients. Absolutely. And um, how do you set up, uh, you know, for patient and for, for office, this CGM? So the CGM falls under the category of durable medical equipment, otherwise known as DME, as covered under Medicare. So in order for a patient to be eligible, there are conditions that have to be met. 
First off, a physician must prescribe the equipment for home use and it must be medically necessary. Second off, the physician prescribing the monitoring system as well as the supplier must be enrolled in Medicare and accept Medicare assignment. And thirdly, the Medicare recipient must have diabetes and must be using a blood glucose monitor to test levels four or more times daily. They must also be taking three or more daily insulin injections. So it will be medically necessary, for example, in a, like we saw in our diabetic type 1 patient, or also in patients who, who are uncontrolled for diabetes type 2. And um, so Medicare Part B, is there any coverage? Yes, so Medicare covers 80% of the approved amount, and Medicare recipients are responsible for paying 20% of the final approved costs, and the Part B deductible will apply. Okay, that's great to know. Um, you know, CGMs are wonderful. Uh, I've seen many patients with them, and they actually look very, very cool. I don't think they, they don't complain about any pain. You know, it's actually very convenient. And uh, it's easy to scan. And actually, you can use the, the smartphone to scan. Yep. You don't have to buy the, the reader that they normally come with um, because that's a different, uh, separate price. But you can use your, uh, your smartphone. And um, I, I just have an anecdote. I went to a, a conference when I was a chief resident in, in Florida. Mm -hmm. And actually, they gave me a CGM to wear and actually an insulin pump. The insulin pump only had saline. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, I was able to wear the CGM. So my experience mm -hmm. so far, well, it was not this freestyle liver. I think they have come up with a better technology now, but it was on my abdomen. Mm -hmm. I was allergic to the glue, to the adhesive. So it became, uh, it had a rash after that. But, uh, you know, the, the filament that goes into your skin is actually very thin. It's kind of like basically like a human hair. Basically. So you barely feel it? You barely feel it. Oh, okay. And it's good because you can go swimming, you can go to the gym, and it, it stays there. Mm -hmm. and I put it on my abdomen, but now people, I see that mostly they use it like behind, behind their arm. And um, yeah, but it was very cool. I was able to get give myself a bolus of saline uh -huh. and, and to be able to, to check my sugar, you know, continuously. Mm -hmm. And I was glad that I was not a diabetic. Yeah. I always, you know, you always have those uh, kind of like ideas in your mind. Oh, am I a diabetic or not? So I'm not a diabetic. And um, well, thank you so much, Denise. Yeah. And I hope you guys uh, know this option, CGMs, prescribe them for your patient, and for your patients and make sure that, um, you know, you become familiar with this new technology because it's the future of diabetes care. So anything else that you want to say, Denise? Uh, again, thank you for having me on, Dr. Ariaza. I did want to end with a short joke. So why did the five-year-old sleep with sugar underneath his pillow? Is it a diabetic child or? Mm. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. Okay. Just in case they have hypoglycemia at night. Oh, that's a good one. Um, actually, because he wanted to have sweet dreams. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you, Denise. Thank okay. you. Thank you, guys. Have a nice week. Bye-bye. Speaking Medical. Hello, my name is Isabello. I'm an MS3 presenting Speaking Medical for episode 22. Have you seen the word xanthochromia in a CSF study result? Xanthochromia has a Greek origin combining yellow, xantho, and color, chromia. 
Xanthochromia basically means yellowish CSF that can be seen with the naked eye. CSF is normally crystal clear. Xanthochromia can be found after several hours of bleeding into the subarachnoid space. This is because of the de degradation of red blood cells after subarachnoid hemorrhage or SAH. Now you know the medical word of the week, xanthochromia. Have a nice week. Now we conclude our episode number 22, Salty and Sweet, Hypertension and Diabetes. We covered the basics on primary aldosteronism with Dr. Velasquez, the salty part, sodium and potassium, and continuous glucose monitoring with Denise, the sweet part, sugar. Isabello explained xanthochromia, which is yellowish cerebrospinal fluid, and to put the cherry on this salty and sweet cake, Dr. Carranza taught us that sugar in Spanish is azúcar. This is the end of Rio Bravo Q Week. We say goodbye from Bakersfield, a special place in this beautiful Central Valley of California, United States, a land where growing is happening everywhere. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicaseravista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org backslash QE. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. Our podcast team this week is Hector Ariaza, Gina Cha, Claudia Carranza, Roberto Velasquez, and the special participation of our medical students, Isabello Lucho Bustamante and Denise Ledewitt. Audio by Sarajam Rutia. See you soon. <laughs>